0: Invite you to open your Bible and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter five. As we've just begun a series on the Beatitudes. Two weeks ago, we first looked at verse, uh, the first Beatitude, and now we'll look at the second Beatitude. I'm going to read all of them. Uh, just a reminder: this is the uh, part of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the opening of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, where Jesus uh, applies the law of God, but he does so uh, in order to uh, bring people to and understanding of their need uh, for the gospel. Let's uh, give our attention then to the Word of God. Matthew chapter 5, begin reading at verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he had sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Lord Jesus, teach us what we need to know, make us what we need to become, uh, as you work through the power of your word and spirit now tonight, and we give you the praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight we're looking at the second beatitude, blessed sorrow. Uh, and of all the counterintuitive and countercultural things that Jesus says in the beatitudes, uh, this might very well be the most counterintuitive and counter uh, countercultural. Um, Jesus is saying blessed are the desolate and the grieving, the sad. Uh, that is 180% um, or 180 degree and 100%, uh, contrary to uh, the convictions of the culture in which we live. We live in a a culture that is convinced blessed are the happy. If there's anything to be learned from endless Facebook posts and Instagram uh, posts, it's that we live by that motto, blessed are the happy, even if we have to fake it. I was reading a fascinating article this past week by a lady who was reviewing her past year of Facebook posts and recognized that the person that she was presenting on Facebook, uh, namely herself, didn't exist. Uh, It was fake. It was a false persona. Uh, She used one picture as an illustration. It's a picture of her standing in her office. Um, She's smiling, and she's holding up balloons that her mother had just uh, sent her for her birthday. And uh, the comment that she posted with the picture was very happy triple exclamation points, and then a few uh, hearts and smiling emojis. And then there uh, there were a few posts of coworkers, so happy for you, congratulations, all those sorts of things. And then she says this. She says, the truth was, on that very day when the photo was taken, she was suicidal. She was so depressed. It was one of the darkest periods in her life. And that um, that led her to sort of review the past year of her posts, and, and she just realized, The reality of her life never made it to the social media account. She says this, instead, quote, You'll find posts that suggest I'm in an apparently constant state of joy and accomplishment. Photos of fall foliage runs, beachside bachelorette parties, launching new projects, making pasta with my mom. Much of this happiness was real, and much of it was totally manufactured. In other words, it was a lie. Now, why would people do that? Why would people just lie on their post, manufacture a life that doesn't exist? Well, because we've assumed the American motto, blessed are the happy. Blessed are the emotionally fulfilled. Blessed are the fit, the fun, the people who find their soulmate, uh, those who love their work, those who are living their dream." There are no blessings, apparently, for those who cry alone in the dark, a despairing of what they've done and who they've become. A very rarely, well, let me ask you, when's the last time you saw a Facebook post that said, I am desperately grieving my sin against God? And yet that is precisely the reality that Jesus pronounces is blessed. That's the a uh, reality that he esteems and commends in the uh, second beatitude: Blessed are those who weep. and And the word that Jesus uses is one of the very strongest uh, terms for sadness in the Greek language. It it's, it, it means intense, heart crushing sorrow. Blessed are you when you sob out loud with large, salty tears running down your cheeks. Uh, blessed are you when there is heartbreak. And and and. There's weeping and groaning and anguish. Jesus says that that's what the the God promises to bless. Those are the favored ones. And the reason, you see, that they are blessed is because they shall be comforted with the comfort that only God can give. So let's look first then just at the sorrow, and then secondly, at the comfort. It's important that we define. The sorrow that Jesus has in mind, uh, people cry for all sorts of reasons and, and, um, and sincere reasons. But the, the sadness that Jesus has in mind is a unique sadness. This is not the sadness of the villagers who, when Jesus cast demons out of the, the man and the demons rushed into the pigs and the pigs rushed into the sea and the villagers were sad. They just lost their uh, economic investment. This is not that sadness. What is the grief that pleases the Lord and that he promises to bless? Well, um, primarily the grief is a sorrow for sin, personal sin. The second beatitude follows the second for a reason. In the first beatitude, we noted blessed are the spiritually bankrupt, the people who acknowledge that they have nothing to bring to the table in their relationship with God. Uh, but uh, So the first, um, the first beatitude speaks of confession of the truth about sin. Well, the second beatitude speaks about contrition of the truth about sin. Blessed are those who feel sorrow over their sin. Blessed are those that, that sense the inexcusable wrong of sin, the vile pollution of sin, the rank offense of sin before the living God. And that's critical. That second part is critical. There are many who grieve what they've done. But, but if we grieve with, without doing that in the presence, in light of, awake to the reality of God, it's going to be the sorrow that just leads to death that Paul talks about. The sorrow that leads to repentance is is the sorrow that happens over sin in the presence of, before the face of God. Maybe the poster child for that grief is the, the parable Jesus tells about two men who went to the temple to pray, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Everyone recognizing that tax collectors were miserable, wretched, vile people. But the tax collector, unlike the Pharisee, saw himself in the presence of God, and so he could not even lift his eyes to look uh, at the the temple where God dwells. Luke 18, 13, the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Uh, Here's a man who's not only telling the truth, he is feeling and grieving the truth. And God delights in it. Jesus promises, I tell you, this man went home justified. Uh, God delights in those who who feel the truth of sin and grieve then, the truth of sin. He delights in tears of contrition. In fact, he delights in it so much, he promises his presence for those who shed those tears. So in Isaiah chapter 57, 15, thus says the High and Holy One, who is the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy? I dwell in a high and holy place. Yes, he does. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. God, the high and holy one, promises to dwell with people who grieve their sin. There's a, it blesses and pleases the heart of God when we shed tears over our wrongs against God. Now, every, every Christian parent understands this joy. If you have children, and if your children, perchance, uh, would ever do something wrong, I know most of them don't, but if, they would, if, if, if one of your child, uh, children does something really wrong, really wicked, evil, mean, hateful, and you go to them and you confront them with the sin... How much joy do you receive with a mumbled apology? I'm sorry. Right? And they turn and walk away. There's no joy in a mumbled apology. Even, even uh, if, it's a, if it's a well-spoken, I'm sorry. But you, you recognize, yeah, they see the sin in terms of they see that they did something they shouldn't have done. But there is no remorse. That doesn't, that doesn't bless you in the least. That grieves your heart. What brings joy is contrition. You see, when, when, when the child breaks down in tears and says, I am so sorry. I don't know why I did that. I don't know why I keep doing that. I know I'm not supposed to. Um, and, 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 and yet I do it again and again. What Christian parent, you see, doesn't rush to embrace that and to encourage that and to thank God for that. That is a work of grace. Grace. God at work in the heart of your child, and because you love your child, and you cherish the work of God's grace, you're going to delight in that contrition. Well, the very same for our Father in heaven. I think in, in some mysterious way, we can say that God takes more joy in repentance and sorrow for sin than he does in obedience. Now I say that, I say that carefully. God loves obedience. And yet Jesus says there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 who are in no need of repentance. And, and that doesn't, of course, there are no people who don't need repentance, but he wants us to understand the, the unique and special joy that God takes in this, this sorrow for sin. Um, now, he's going to preach... Um, Again, God loves obedience. Jesus is going to preach a whole sermon on obedience. You've heard that it was said, do not do this. I say to you, even if you do this, you're, you're violating the law. He's going to press the law of God and all of its truth um, even more uh, carefully, clearly, particularly crushingly in the Sermon on the Mount. And the reason he does it isn't to raise the standard to make you jump more highly. He's, he's doing it to make you realize your bankruptcy. He's doing it to lead you to godly sorrow. Now, why would God do that? Why would God want to crush us that way? Why not give us nice, easy commandments? Try to be nice. Try to pe- treat people well. Why these laws about even if you even look at a a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. And you know what happens to adulterers? They go to hell. Why tell us that? If you're angry, you're guilty of murder. Do you know what happens to murderers who are unrepentant? Hellfire. Because Jesus wants to bring us to an end of ourselves and bring us to tears of contrition. And the reason he wants to bring us to tears of contrition is we will never see him otherwise. That the only way you can really see Jesus is through tears. Think about um, the Pharisees. They loved obedience. They were all about obedience. And they had Jesus, the sovereign Lord, um, working miracles in their presence, miracles so profound that Jesus assured them that if the pagans in Tyre and Sidon were watching what the Pharisees were watching, the pagans would have repented in dust and ashes a long time ago. The Pharisees did not and would not. Why not? Well, they, they couldn't see. Their pride was completely in the way. Um, think about uh, on the opposite side of the scale, the, 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 this beautiful story that, that we're told in Luke chapter 7, where um, Jesus is at a, at Simon's house, and uh, not Simon uh, the apostle, another Simon and a Pharisee, and and they're eating together and a, a, a woman who's known to be a sinner, a prostitute, comes and she kneels at the feet of Jesus. He's reclining by the table. She kneels at the feet of Jesus and she's weeping. Weeping. So much so that she is drenching Jesus' feet with her tears and then she's taking her hair to dry his feet. It is embarrassing in its in its intimacy, in its brokenness. And the Pharisees, of course, because they can't see Jesus and all they see here is a sinful person, they don't see any beauty here at all. Jesus rebukes them. This woman actually saw Jesus through tears. Simon Peter the Apostle had this same experience. He walked with Jesus for three years. Simon's the one who said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then, and then about 30 seconds later, he's being rebuked, um, get behind me, Satan. So he could say the words, he saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, he knew that he was the Son of God, but Simon Peter never really saw Jesus as the Savior for sinners until he saw him through the hot, bitter tears he wept after he had betrayed and denied that he even knew the Christ. And he went out and he wept bitterly. And only then, you see, was was Peter able to see Jesus in truth as the great Savior for great sinners. Blessed are those who mourn. One of the primary evidences of of the grace of God at work in your life will be exactly this. It will be sorrow for sin. And, and that will be an ongoing reality in your Christian life as you grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ, as you, as you learn more about him and learn to love him more, uh, as you grow in, in greater appreciation of all that Christ has accomplished for you. When you were not looking for it, you were not asking for it. You were very happy to live in, in your deadness and blindness and sin. And yet Jesus loved you and he gave his life for you. And that will break your heart. You'll find increasing sorrow and despair over all the times and ways that you've sinned against the Lord and all the ways that you continue to fail, to love him with all your heart and soul and strength. Paul gives an example of this in Romans chapter 7. He talks about the good that I would, I do not, and the evil that I would not, that I do. Who will rescue me from this bondage This body of sin and death and thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Jesus Christ. One of the chief evidences of the Holy Spirit's work in your life will be an increasing tenderness um, concerning your sin. And an increasing grief, godly sorrow because of your sin against a loving, holy God. But it doesn't stop there. I believe we see in the Bible two others and I'll touch these quickly. But one would be uh, we see a sorrow for the church, for the sin of the church. If you love Jesus Christ, you you long for him to be worshiped and adored, particularly by his church, by his bride. A great part of the sorrow of Jesus was the sorrow of being in Israel, in Jerusalem, and in Judea and Galilee, uh, but but going to his own, and his own received him not. Not. Going to his own and, and, and seeing that there was not a love for the Lord God, a desire to honor him, particularly among the religious leaders. These are, these are God's people, descendants of Abraham, recipients of the law, recipients of uh, the messages of the prophets. Israel, he was sent to them to preach to them, and they refused to listen, and it broke his heart. He, he wept over Jerusalem, God's people. How often I, I would have longed to gather you as a, as, a, as a hen gathers her chicks under my wing, but you would not. And he's weeping. He's weeping. You find that in the Old Testament, a mark of godliness is sorrow over the sins of the church. In Ezekiel chapter 9, God is going to bring judgment and uh, to it, and he sends an angel to destroy uh, the wicked among his own people. But he says this before you do that, verse 4 pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. If if you're a Christian who loves Jesus Christ, and, and because you love Jesus, you love his church, you cannot help but be moved to sadness when you see the church failing, sinning, uh, becoming worldly, becoming just proud. It, it breaks your heart. Paul rebukes the church um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Here's a, in this church a man who's, who's uh, having sexual relations with his, with his father's wife, and they've done nothing about it. And, and, and Paul rebukes them. You're, you are, you're proud, you're arrogant. Should you not rather mourn? Shouldn't this break your heart that such sin is just a, a, happens and is allowed, condoned in the church? It is not love to look at the church as it's struggling and just shrug your shoulders. If you love Jesus Christ, it, it, it'll it'll break your heart when false teachers come and lead God's people astray. I, I um, remember just the sadness when Rob Bell was in town, and started out as an evangelical pastor, and then and then just watching him slowly, 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 slowly leave Scripture. Fourteen thousand people, most of them from churches, every week, being misled. And you see, if you love the church and you love Jesus, you can't just shrug your shoulders and say, oh, well, each to his own. These are Christ's sheep. How many didn't have their faith devastated by a false teacher? I hope you sense, when we look at the church, let's just talk closer to home. When we look at our own feelings, when we look at the, the struggles and feelings of our own denomination, um, we don't have to go far to see, to see failure. It should break our heart. Shouldn't we be grieved if the church is less than what God has called it to be? If the church is worldly? If the church is proud, self-satisfied, self-reliant? No concern for the cause of Christ. And then finally, sorrow for lost world. Paul wept for the lost world. Philippians 3.18, he says, "...for many whom I have told you often, and I tell you now even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame." with minds set on earthly things. Paul looked at the pagan world of his day and it was pagan. It was thoroughly pagan. Men and women made in the image of God and they were selling themselves and selling their souls so cheaply. Their God was their belly. Their God was just physical satisfaction of appetites. Even though God had clearly revealed himself and the things that he had made and they were created to glorify this God, but they refused to honor him as God or give thanks to him. They refused to do it, and it broke his heart. Even now, he says, I tell you, even now with tears, as Paul thought about it, he wept. It's easy, you see, for us, and maybe instinctual for us, to look at the paganizing of our culture and, and to feel righteous indignation. That is not inappropriate. It's just not enough. What about the weeping? For men and women made in the image of God who are throwing their lives away, their eternal souls away. For what? For nothing. Deceived in bondage. And we would be exactly there were it not for the grace of God in our lives. That's a sorrow that pleases the heart of God. And God promises blessings to those who grieve. They shall be comforted. It's not very it's a very short statement. They shall be comforted, but such a precious statement. What's the comfort that's given to those who mourn for their sin? It's the it's the comfort of justification, my sin, not in part, but the whole the fact that that God has promised that in the gospel I confessing my sin and all the truth of it, and it's more ugly than, I've, than I even know, but but as I confess that sin and crawl on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus promises to forgive my sin because he bore it for me on the cross of Calvary, and that the the, the judgment of God that I deserve Jesus bore so that I can now be declared as innocent and righteous in the sight of God, as a free gift. Now think of that. That can be true for you. It is true for you in Jesus Christ. It's not an idea, it's not a theory, it's not a theology. It is is gospel truth for you, the sinner, and all the sins that you've committed, you can know that, that you are justified by faith in Jesus Christ, that this is the gift Jesus gives to those who grieve their sin, confessing it and calling on his name, the sentence is rendered once for all innocent, righteous, and then the, the comfort of glorification aren't you aren't you tired of sinning aren't you, aren't you just sick of it aren't you Did you grow just weary of your your, your lethargy, your apathy your the, the the eagerness that you engage in sin and the, and the the slowness that you engage the things of god aren't you Aren't you longing to be done with it? Jesus promises that will happen. One day we're going to be changed. Our heart will be consumed with one holy passion filling all of our frame. Every inclination of your heart all the time continually will only be to enjoy Jesus, to glorify Jesus, to bless Jesus, to know Jesus, to love Jesus forever. That will be the one experience of your glorified body and soul. We shall be comforted. And for those who grieve the weakness and the failure of the church, if you love the church, won't it be a joy on that last day to see her in her perfected state, a spotless, pure, holy bride? Doesn't it just break your heart when John talks about, I saw coming down out of heaven the holy city, dressed as a bride, beautifully adorned for her husband, oh, the church of Jesus Christ, that has struggled in sin and failed in so many ways, and yet on that day made beautiful, spotless, robed in the radiance and the glory and the honor of Jesus Christ. And that's you and that's me, members of that church. Oh, I hope you're hungry for that. Do you mourn the effects of sin in the world around us? All the God-denying, soul-destroying effects of the fall. Aren't you hungry for the day when the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the water covers the sea? And everything will be made new. No more night, no more pain, no more sin. God himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And God will dwell with them and will be their God, and they will be his people. That's the comfort. It's nothing less. Nothing less. How can we be certain? because the man who spoke the promise went to the cross to secure it. Jesus Christ wasn't just teaching, he was prophesying. And when he promised this blessing for, comfort for sinners, he, he knew that it would be sealed with his own blood on a cross. That's why he came, to comfort those who mourn by atoning for all the evil things that we've done and, and granting us the blessing of all the righteous things that he did. This is what the prophet Promised in Isaiah 40, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. Double what? Double grace. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. All the more. Our sin is forgiven. The debt is canceled. The guilt is gone. The shame is removed. The penalty is paid. The power is broken. And in its place, we are comforted with all the grace and love and honor and freedom of the children of God. That is the peace that Jesus wants us to know tonight. To know the truth of the song we sing, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Friends, Jesus has invited us tonight to a table so that the certainty of these things can be inscribed in our hearts as we taste the bread and taste the wine, as we see with our senses the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ who died to comfort sinners who mourn. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, thank you that your spirit, your, your power is able to break our hard hearts and teach us to mourn and to grieve the things that are offensive to you, the things that violate your character and your law and your goodness and love and grace. And Jesus, we pray that you would continue to do that work, soften our hard hearts, bring us to our knees in a godly sorrow that loves Jesus and that hates everything that is opposed to him, so that we love anger, not just because it's wrong, but because it's contrary to all the love and grace we've received in Christ. And we, we hate sexual sin, not just because it's wrong, because it's embarrassing, but because it's against all the purity and goodness of the Jesus who died bearing our shame. That we learn to hate sin because we love Christ. And loving Jesus, we love his church, we love his cause, and we love lost people made in God's image in bondage to sin. And we're willing to walk this world then weeping, not in despair, but in hope, in the comfort and confidence that one day, one day, we will be in every way comforted. Lord, I pray now as we come to the table that you would write these truths in our heart, that you would do this work that only you can do by your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to have the elders come forward.